0: Uh, perhaps you remember it because it was a Service Project Sunday. On Service Project Sundays, we cancel all classes for all ages and instead meet in Fellowship Hall to work on a service project together. And so it was a Service Project Sunday. And somewhere middle toward, to the end of that Service Project Sunday, between services, someone came in and grabbed me and said, There's a man in the lobby who would like to talk with the pastor. And I always kind of wonder, okay, what's this going to be about um, someone wanting to talk with the pastor? So I went out there and I started talking with him. He seemed like a nice man, and he asked if we could talk a little bit. And so we went down to my office, and once we sat down, one of the first things he said is, I need to talk with you about what the Bible teaches about baptism. I need to talk with you about what the Bible teaches about baptism. And instantly I kind of went on guard a little bit because... I've had conversations like that before, and so I had some idea of where that conversation may be headed, and my, my uh, wonderings were correct, uh, because he started by talking about what I would consider to be a bit of a distorted view about baptism, and then the conversation quickly led to him trying to convince me that there was not a trinity, that God was not three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit being one God. And it was really interesting, because he was trying to say, you know, the only God is Jesus Christ. Father, son, I mean, they're kind of not really there in the same way that Jesus is. And so what he was asking me to do was to go against a teaching that has been a foundational Christian doctrine for 2,000 years. And he was asking me to do that in the course of a 10 to 15-minute conversation on Sunday morning when my mind is already a million other places. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for making a big deal of Jesus. And we call ourselves a gospel-centered community here, which is, focused on the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And so we unashamedly proclaim that we love Jesus, and he is our primary focus. But at the same time, I'm not going to quickly discard uh, a Christian doctrine that has been there for 2,000 years, in which I firmly believe and I've studied through the years. But this does raise a very interesting question. If you were in my shoes, if you were sitting there talking with someone who said, okay, here's this view of baptism, and because of this view of baptism, I want you to disregard the Trinity. How would you respond? What would would you say in that sort of conversation if someone says, you know, the Trinity is just a man-made doctrine. It's not biblical at all. And they're throwing a bunch of scripture at you to try to back up their their viewpoint. How would you respond? I think for a lot of people, when they're in situations like this where someone is is passionate and they seem genuine, about their belief, but their belief is different than your own, and they're even throwing some scripture in there, it can get really confusing. And you can wonder, okay, what is the truth here? I've heard some stuff, but here this person is saying this, and we can get all confused. There's a lack of clarity in there. You know, if we back up 2,000 years ago, even to the book of Acts, which we're studying right now, we're gonna, we see that there are similar controversies, questions of doctrine, questions of what should we believe, questions of what does the Bible really teach. And today we're going to look at a controversy, a theological controversy, that, that was not just between a pastor and some random guy off the street. It was drawing in probably hundreds, if not even thousands, of people because of its scope, and it threatened the very foundations of Christianity And the growing Christian church back then. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. We're currently in a sermon series called Turning Points, and Turning Points is all about looking at those key shifts and those significant events that took place in the early church to lead to the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Today we're in Acts chapter 15 talking about the turning point of clarifying the gospel when the early church asked, Okay, what is the gospel? How do we clarify it in the midst of the misunderstandings that are taking place? And so we're going to look at this in a couple different parts. And we're going to start out reading in in verse 26 of chapter 14. We read this last week at the end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. But we're going to look at this uh, just picking up at the end of last week and then moving on into the controversy that's taking place here. So picking up verse 26 of Acts chapter 14, we see that Paul and Barnabas... They were from Italia. This they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. So they started in Antioch. Now they're heading back to Antioch at the end of their year-long missionary journey. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how He'd opened the door to faith of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So this church in Antioch, they're they're all excited about what God has been doing through Paul and Barnabas and spreading the gospel, especially beyond the normal Jewish world. Now non-Jewish people are embracing Jesus as well. And so they're celebrating. The church is growing very quickly. But very quickly, there's tension that begins to grow there. We see in chapter 15, verse 1, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So we see here a conflict that is beginning to take place. The conflict was over the question of, do Gentile Christians need to be circumcised in order to receive salvation? Now, in our, in our culture today, we wonder, okay, why is that a prominent question? Well, in that culture, it was a very prominent question. Because in the Jewish world, in order for a man to be Jewish, he had to be circumcised. In order for anyone to be Jewish, there were certain laws and certain customs they had to uphold. And there was a group of people called Judaizers who were Jewish Christians, but, but they tried to impose Jewish beliefs and Jewish customs on Christians. For instance, they said if men want to be Christians, you have to be circumcised first. You have to, uh, and, and all people, men and women, have to uphold these certain Jewish practices, including certain types of food you have to eat. They were Judaizers pushing and proclaiming uh, Jewish laws and customs upon Christians. And really what it was like is um, to, to describe this debate going on. There are a couple different views of how you get salvation. One was that to get salvation, you have one metaphorical door that you go through. And that is the door of faith in Christ. But there was an opposing viewpoint from these Judaizers that say, no, faith in Christ by itself is not enough for salvation. There's a second door you have to go through first, and that is the door of Jewish customs uh, and Jewish practices and Jewish beliefs, that you have to first go through that door, become basically a Jew, and then the door to faith in Christ is open to you that leads to salvation. So that was what these Judaizers were trying to proclaim. And, and Luke writes here that this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute And debate with them. I mean, this was a very animated uh, debate. Um, I mean, they were upset with each other. There were a lot of fireworks and drama around this. And we see a glimpse of how much drama there was and how much passion there was in this when we look at the book of Galatians. Galatians is a book that Paul wrote right around the time of Acts chapter 15. And he's writing to churches in a region called Galatia, which is the region that he had just been doing his missionary journey in and planting new churches. And evidently, Judaizers were trying to impose these Jewish customs on these young Christians in in this this region of Galatia. And so Paul's writing a letter to them saying, no, this is not the gospel. And listen to the passion that he writes about in Galatians chapter 1. He says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel of heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. he says it again. As we've already said, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let him be eternally condemned. I mean, that's the strong rhetoric taking place here, uh, the passion behind this, because in Paul's mind, the very essence of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is at stake here. And there are these opposing viewpoints, and they're butting heads. We see over in Galatians 2 that some of the other apostles, including Peter and Barnabas, are being sucked into this. And it just shows that there's a lot of confusion. And same with certain doctrinal issues today as well. But there's confusion there. And so something has to happen to figure out, how are we going to resolve this issue so that the church is not ripped apart and so that the gospel is not compromised? Well, we see there's a next step beginning in the middle verse 2. It says that, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So we see that their solution is not just to try to solve the problem themselves, but to bring in others, spiritually mature believers, uh, leaders in the church in Jerusalem, in order to seek God's truth together. This is essentially what could be called a church council, a gathering of Christian leaders. Uh, specifically, scholars call this the Jerusalem council, where these, these leaders in, in the church in Jerusalem, as well as Paul and Barnabas and others, are getting together to talk about what are we going to do now in order to uh, resolve this issue? What is biblical teaching here? And so we see that probably over the period of several days, they began to talk and to hear different viewpoints. For instance, in verse 5 of Acts 15, it says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles should be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And so we see here that these are Pharisees, but, but they were believers in Christ. They're people who were going to see in heaven one day, but they had a mistaken view of how a person um, receives salvation. They thought you need to accept the Jewish practices in order to have faith in Christ and salvation. But then we see, beginning in verse 6, that Peter stood up and offered a contrary viewpoint. It says, After much discussion, verse 7, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, You know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So Peter stands up and he refers to his encounter with Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10 and said, Cornelius, he was a Gentile, but God accepted Cornelius through faith in Christ just as he accepts us. So Peter is proposing that it's only through faith in Christ that a person has salvation. Then we see a while later, uh, the whole assembly became silent. They they began hearing a, a discussion from Barnabas and Paul, verse 12. Barnabas and Paul were telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they were finished, James spoke up. James here, he's the brother of Jesus. During Jesus' earthly life and ministry, James and the rest of his family didn't believe that Jesus was anything special. They thought, he's just a normal human being. He's just our brother. We grew up with him. But then after Jesus was resurrected, James began to believe in Christ, and he became the main leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so James speaks up here and says, Brothers, listen to me. Cyrene Peter has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. This comes from the prophet Amos, written hundreds of years before the time of Christ. He quoted Amos saying, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the the Gentiles who hear my name, says the Lord who does these things, that have been known for ages. James then says, It is my judgment, therefore... That we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles to turn into God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been, has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So James here summarizes this whole conversation that goes that's going on here. He says, "Look." as we see from the testimony that came from Peter and Paul and Barnabas, as we see even from Old Testament Scripture, that the Gentiles are going to come to Christ and that we should welcome them without putting added restrictions on them. He did come up with a couple of practical guidelines for them, recommendations uh, that, that prevented them from needlessly stepping on the toes of Jewish Christians, just based on the Jewish background there. But he ultimately says, look, salvation comes through Christ alone. That's the only source of salvation. And this points to an important, appropriate role of church councils. The Council of Jerusalem was not the only church council through church history. There have been many others. Uh, But the appropriate role of a church council like this is to clarify biblical teaching. A church council does not have the authority to come up with new teaching. The appropriate role of church councils is is to ask, okay, what does the Bible teach about this topic or that topic? And to come up with a consensus together of what is the biblical teaching here. And so that is what the the Council of Jerusalem did. That's what's been done a number of other times. There have been church councils in more recent history that have proclaimed things that really are not in line with Scripture. That's why we want to clarify. The appropriate role of a church council is to clarify biblical teaching. One of the other prominent church councils, Probably the best known of the other ones is the Council at Nicaea, 325 A.D. There's a lot of controversy in the Roman Empire about the nature of the Trinity. People were asking, okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how do they relate to each other? Is the Son of God a created being that the Father is eternal and the Son was created? Where is the Holy Spirit fit in that? Is the Holy Spirit equal to the Father and Son, or is he something entirely different? So there was a lot of controversy and discussion going on. And so a church council got this together in the city of Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey, and they spent days and days discussing, debating, praying, studying scripture to ask, okay, what is the biblical doctrine about the nature of God? And so after much discussion and much study and much prayer, they understood that biblical teaching is that there's three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are all One. Now, you certainly find people today who say, well, no, the Trinity is just a man-made doctrine. It comes from the Council of Nicaea. For instance, if you've ever read the Da Vinci Code, page 233, uh, there's a statement there that basically says, okay, the divinity of Jesus, Jesus being God, that was an invention of the Council of Nicaea. That's what the Da Vinci Code says. And it says that up until that time, the followers of Jesus just thought that Jesus was an ordinary mortal man. A good teacher, yes that he died just like everyone else does and that he was not resurrected. You can look it up, page 233 under the Da Vinci Code. But that's false. They did not create new doctrine. Instead, they sought to clarify in the midst of confusion in the Roman Empire, they wanted to clarify what is biblical teaching. That is what the best church councils do, is clarify biblical teaching. And that's what happened here in Acts chapter 15. Now looking down in verse 22 and 23, we see what they did next. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter, and they wrote down a letter uh, containing what, what they understood to be the biblical teaching on these topics. And this points to another important step that church councils often take. It's the codification of, of what they understand to be clear biblical teaching. Codification is a fancy word just saying they're putting it into writing so that you can't question uh, what the outcome was. It's important to put stuff in writing. We have to recognize the Bible is not a systematic theology textbook. Systematic theology asks, okay, what does the Bible teach about God? What does the Bible teach about Jesus? What does the Bible teach about salvation? What does the Bible teach about church? What does the Bible teach about end times? And it systematically looks at various topics related to Christian theology. You have to recognize the Bible is not written to be systematic theology. It's all divinely inspired. It's all authoritative. But it was written as divinely inspired historical accounts of what took place or divinely inspired letters to various churches. And so it's not systematized um, as much as we might like it on, on compiling all the teaching on various topics together into one place. So that's one of the roles of a church council or of other church leaders or, or, or of Christian scholars is to help clarify what is biblical teaching on these topics. And so that's what the, church, the Council of Jerusalem did. They clarified it. The, the gospel says that salvation comes only through faith in Christ. And then they put it in writing and they sent it to the church in Antioch. And other, other church councils have been the same thing. If you've heard of the Nicene Creed, that comes from the Council of Nicaea. But we have to remember that amidst all this, we must ultimately ask not what do humans say, not what does the council say, but what does Scripture say. But insofar as a creed or as a letter like is written here in Acts 15, insofar as it, it aligns with Scripture, it can be a helpful tool for us. So now listen to what happens in verses 30 and 31. It says that these men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. And I'll tell you, if I were a Gentile man, I'd probably be glad for that too. To not have to undergo circumcision. But on a broader basis... This, this would be incredibly encouraging to know that the gospel teaches that salvation is only through faith in Christ. And, and what they've done here is clarify the gospel. The clear gospel is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Just as Pastor David was talking about earlier, you don't need to add anything to it. Adding anything to it in order to try to earn God's favor doesn't work. It's not biblical. All that you need is grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is how we get salvation. And it's important for us even today to keep clarifying the gospel message. Because it's easy for the gospel to get kind of muddy and kind of confusing sometimes. So we need to understand the gospel does not say, follow these religious rules and then you will get into heaven. No, the gospel says the only way we can get into heaven is look to what Christ has already done. The gospel is not the same as the golden rule. Uh, The golden rule is nice. There's a lot of biblical precedent there of doing to others what you want done to yourself. But that's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't say, okay, if you follow God and try to honor him, then you will be healthy and wealthy and wise and all these things. That's not the gospel either. There are a lot of blessings that come through the gospel, but it's not an automatic promise that you're going to have prosperity in your business and be healthy and instantly have peace everywhere all around you. The gospel says that Jesus loves us and he loves us so much that he came to die for us. And that we can have a restored relationship with God and with brothers and sisters in Christ through faith in him. So uh, in wrapping up a question for us, what do we do when we face confusing circumstances? If someone came in to you and said, "Don't no, you know, the Trinity isn't real. Um, it's just a man-made doctrine. How would you respond? How would you respond to other objections or questions that people raise to uh, just Christian beliefs? I want to challenge you and encourage you to do what the people in Acts 15 did. First of all, um, they ask, what do the Christian leaders say about this topic? You have to recognize, if if you face a question, I guarantee it's not the first time in human history that that question has ever been asked. It's probably something that's been worked through um, many different times by many people who know far more than we do about Scripture. And so it can be very helpful to ask, okay, what do the Christian leaders say about this? whether it's the church councils of the past, whether it's current uh, teachers at seminary or even pastors. But the second question is, what does the Bible say? And we see that in Acts 15, they did both. They went and convened a a council at Jerusalem, and they ultimately asked, what does Scripture say about this topic? Because Scripture is our final authority in everything. And back to that man on on April April 7th. I I expressed to him, you know... (laughs) You're not going to convince me in 10 or 15 minutes when my mind's already elsewhere to, to completely throw aside some doctrine that has been held for 2,000 years. If you'd like to talk further, please come back during this week. But he wasn't interested. He just wanted to come in, kind of drop the bomb, unload the stuff, and then walk back out. <laughs> but I did try to point him scripture. I pointed out some scriptures that, um, that contradicted the things he was saying. and He just kind of dismissed them. In the back of my mind is the Council of Nicaea about, you know, this thing was worked out 1,700 years ago. It's been upheld so many times, but the Bible teaches it. But, but he wasn't having any of it. He just walked out and said, I mean, it was a cordial meeting. I mean, he, he was a genuinely nice guy. Uh, but he's just a little mixed up on some of these things. But it's important that we know why we believe what we believe. So I want to challenge you. If you are confused in any of the topics about Christianity, I want to challenge you to figure out what is the answer to those things, to clarify your beliefs about God and about the gospel and about scripture. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you bear with us through our misunderstandings. We, we Lord, we, we mess up in all kinds of ways. We have all kinds of questions and doubts at times, but we thank you that you give us clarity through your word and through Christian leaders who can help us Uh, go in the right direction. I pray for each one of us that you help us to to gain increased clarity in what we understand because we know that even though doctrine and theology can seem kind of dry and boring sometimes, it is really the basis of everything we do. And if we don't have the theology right, nothing else is really going to be right either. So Lord, help us to understand you correctly in Jesus' name. Amen. So now as we lead into our final closing song today, I'm going to invite us to join together in reciting the Nicene Creed. I grew up in a church where we recited the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or some creed every single week. And I had no idea what they were about. I mean, I memorized them. I, I bet that many of you are the same way. And it wasn't until I got to seminary and a church history class when I learned about the Council of Nicaea and learned about the debate that was going on and people were trying to hammer out what is biblical doctrine, that that's where the Nicene Creed came out of. They codified what their, what their beliefs were. Of biblical doctrine and wrote it down so that generations after would have a clear understanding of the Trinity and the gospel. So I'm going to invite us to stand and uh, read together the Nicene Creed. I'll, I'll warn you in advance; it's not super short, um, and and there is a, a bit of a confusing thing at the near the end that says we believe in the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. What that means is not the Roman Catholic Church; it just means the universal church as a whole, the Church that has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, that we believe that we are one church. So let's read together, and we'll sing. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God,